Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for Thoroughbred Daily News. And on Saturdays, I co-host the Down the Stretch Radio Show with Dave Johnson on Sirius XM Radio. Good morning, guys. I'm Randy Moss with uh, NBC Sports and the Buyer Speed Figure team. Zoe Cabman here with First Racing and Santa Anita. And I am now an expert on everything Taylor Swift after getting drugged <laughs> to the movie there was a concert the other day with three people sitting next to me telling me all about Taylor Swift. So, Randy, I know that you're a big Taylor Swift fan. Anything you want to know as a fellow Swifty, you just ask me on this podcast. Zoe, I went to the movie also two nights oh, ago with my wife. How about that? I, thought, I enjoyed it. It's, it, it was, uh, it's, it's pretty phenomenal how talented she is. <laughs> That's amazing. You're left out now, Bill. We're already uh, I have not seen it. Will not see it. Don't care. Travis Kelsey, who cares? Come on, enough and this is, is enough. Um, I want to remind you that this week we are brought to you by Keeneland, and uh, we're very happy to have them sponsorship. Well, some huge off-the-track news this week, and I can't say it to me, a total surprise. Frankie Dettori is back. Yes, he announced that he is not going to retire at the end of the year, and as a matter of fact, he's going to start riding again at Santa Anita, the winter meet starting on December 26. And so far as his plans afterwards, he really left that open. He doesn't look like he's in any hurry to retire. He wants to ride in the Kentucky Derby. He talked about riding in the U.S. Uh, maybe throughout the year. Great news for the United States racing. Great news for racing in particular. And I guess my thought about this is why not? Uh, in 2023, he had a really good year. He's 52 years old, but he was third in the jockey standing in Santa Anita with 26 wins. Uh, he won at an 18% rate, won four stakes races. Uh, one of his goals is to get a derby horse. Bob Baffert uh, is certainly the guy he's going to try to align himself uh, to do that. And you know what? It's so cool to have Frankie Dettori back, especially if the bulk of the year he's going to be riding in the United States, Randy. I think he was kind of blown away by the reception that he got from Horseman at Santa Anita. I, mean, I, I think he, and I think he told us this basically when we interviewed him earlier, when he was a, uh, a Green Group guest of the week. I think he expected to go out there and, and maybe ride some big stakes races and pick up a few mounts and hopefully get him out for the Kentucky Derby. Heck, I mean, he was killing it out there. So if you can be that successful, you can live in Southern California this year or next year. He can spend the summer at Del Mar. Maybe you can come up with the Kentucky Derby horse. Uh, we pointed out when he was riding at Santa Anita, he looked as good or better on a horse than the younger guys that were 20, 25 years younger than him. If you're making money, if you're living in a great spot, if you're having fun, why not? And he's planning on... Planning on going out in a blaze of glory on Champions Day this weekend. Looks like he'll have King of Steel, Inspiral, Kinross. There's, it's going to be a fantastic, 
day of racing, a champion's day, but the bookies have made him eight to one to return to England for Royal Ascot. He says this weekend will be his last week racing in England, but that's not the case. If Wesley Ward's sending a horse to Royal Ascot, if Todd Pletcher's, if anyone is George Weaver, they're going to want Frankie and he'll go over to Ascot to ride at Royal Ascot. I'll take that eight to one. All day long, twice on Sunday. He had a fantastic win winter out here. It was great for California racing. And I think one of the key parts was his wife, Catherine, absolutely loved the lifestyle. He raced three days a week. Perhaps one day we'll get back to four. I'm not really quite sure when that will happen. But, you know, Frankie came out in the morning and worked horses. And, and he was winning on 12-5 claimers, non-winners of two lifetime, and jumping off horses just like every other day, I'm surprised his knees actually took it. <laughs> America's been good to Frankie DeTore. I looked up, he's won 72 mounts from 506 lifetime starts for $37 million. Now, the bulk of those coming in Breeders' Cups, so the purses are way, way higher. That averages out to $74,000 per mount each time he gets aboard a horse. So that's a lot to think about. Does Frankie really need the money? No, but he likes the accolades. He likes the spotlight and he likes to have a good time. And especially out here in America, we like to have a good time. And I think it's fantastic to have him over. He said he's got nothing left to prove in England. What's he won? He's won the Derby twice, the 1,000, 2,000 guineas, four times each. He wants to win the Kentucky Derby. That is his number one goal. So, yeah, good for him. I mean, he might have peed off a few people that paid money to go on some of his whirlwind tours in Europe and especially the dinner that they're set to have. Like, why are we? He's not retiring. But I think it's great. When he did say he was going to retire, one of the things he pointed to, he says, um, I don't want to go out like Christ Christina. This shows my knowledge of soccer players. Cristiano Ronaldo, um, who I guess was some big shot soccer player who towards the end of his career um, was. Um, is it that bad, Randy? I don't know, really know who's playing. <laughs> Ronaldo's, Ronaldo's pretty big, Bill. He's pretty big. All right. I know, I know, I know who Messi is. Um, but, uh, okay, but anyways, okay. okay. So we didn't want to go out like this very famous guy named Ronaldo who uh, towards the end of his career – and I think he was afraid that he was going to get to that point in his career where he was going to have to ride a bunch of 40 to one shots or something like that. And it turned out to be the exact opposite. Now, I'm going to make a further prediction here. I think he's going to stick around for not just 2024. I think he might stick around for another two or three years. Again, back to the why not factor. Randy, you were the one who brought this up, that he looks as good, if not better, than anyone on a horse in Southern California. He's getting the mounts. He's having a great time. Um, he's 52 now. That used to be an age where it was almost uh, uh, mandatory that a jockey would retire. We now see Mike Smith and others riding into their late 50s and doing well. Um I think, especially if he doesn't win the Derby, if he gets that taste in his mouth and gets close, I don't think Frankie's going anywhere for quite some time. I do want to remind you that the TDN Writers' Room is brought to you by Keeneland. Racing at Keeneland continues Wednesdays through Sundays until October the 28th at the Keeneland Fall Meeting. You can plan your day at the races, and it's a good one, by visiting Keeneland. Dot com. The 2023 edition of the November Breeding Stock Sale begins on Wednesday, November the 8th. The sale, which catalogs broodmares, broodmare prospects, along them Puka, 
the Dam of Mage, Caraval, her Dam ZZ Zoom, as well as Weanlings, Horses of Racing Age, Stallions and Stallion Prospects and Shares. Keeneland is the world's most important auction in times in terms of total sales and average. Some of the global industry's top broodmares and broodmare prospects have been sold at the sale. This weekend's racing continues. This weekend's racing at Keeneland produced more black type updates to the catalog. Check them out at november.keeneland.com. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. At Keeneland, a horse will always be measured in hands. Hands that see, that sense, that speak. Hands that hold our sport to a higher standard. Not for our sake, but for theirs. For the love of the horse, for generations to come. Well, of course, we're all looking forward to running in the Breeders' Cup. Echo Zulu, by some accounts, the fastest horse in the sport, uh, broke down last week at Santa Anita. That's the bad news. The good news is that she had successful surgery the next day to repair broken sesamoids in her left front legs. Looks like she's going to be okay. Looks like she can go on to be a broodmare. And uh, Zoe, I know that you have more to say about Echo Zulu. Well, in this week's edition of First Things First, I actually caught up with the connections, Scott Blasey and renowned veterinarian, Dr. Ryan Carpenter, to talk about Echo Zulu and just see how she's getting on. I'll tell you one thing, boys, she loves her carrots. Dr. Ryan Carpenter did the surgery. He's one of the best in the land. You know, um... Dr. Carpenter and I have had a relationship for a long time, and um, he actually came to Kentucky to speak on the on this topic. And uh, very thankful and fortunate that we had him um, with a phone call away. Was here immediately. Um, did everything the stabilizer that we could possibly do. Um, Santa Anita veterinarians and staff from the people on the horse ambulance. Um, everybody did such a fantastic job. They were, you know, right there immediately. And, um, you know, we can't, we can't thank everybody enough for everything that they've put into it. So Ryan, how did the surgery go? And give us a prognosis on Echo Zulu. Yeah, so the surgery went very well. We did um, a fetlock arthrodesis and we used a new plate called the distal femoral plate, which is an application from the human orthopedic world to incorporate the pastern joint in our repair because we we're really worried about the integrity of the pastern joint and our biggest fear with these kind of cases is that they subluxate their pastern in the weeks following surgery and then that usually results in support limb laminitis. So we're very proactive to address that problem in order, in order to help kind of hedge our bets down the line, but we still have a long road ahead of us. Um, as I've said before, these horses really aren't out of the woods for the next four to six weeks. Um, there's a lot that can go wrong, um, but we take each day by day. And so far she's done really well. Um, she looks great, um, bearing equal weight, using her casted leg well. So we're very encouraged initially on how things look. And so we'll keep our fingers crossed that we continue to have positive days and every good day is one day closer to a successful outcome. In your opinion, knowing the kind of champion she is, what kind of patient is she? She's been awesome. Um, the one of the things that I look for, honestly, um, right out of the gate is do they lay down? 
and she spent a lot of time laying down initially and she's even spent a lot of time laying down after surgery. She's up using her leg a lot more so she's a lot more comfortable but she still lays down and sleeps at night takes care of herself and really when you're talking about these horses that are um, developed laminitis um, the best thing for a surgeon is a horse that lays down because they just unload their weight legs, they take the weight off, they let the blood flow get to their feet, um, and that's just a real positive thing for us. So hopefully she continues to do that in the coming weeks and that'll um, bode well for us in the end. A lot of people may have a heart attack when they hear laying down because we hear horror stories about horses having accidents getting up. Yeah, so the accidents they have getting up are usually related to general anesthesia and so you got to remember these horses are asleep they're often uncoordinated when they get up but if you look at a horse that stands up in a stall it's a, actually a very slow methodical process they do it all the time i mean horses lay down most of the time every day and they get up really well and you watch them and a lot of times they'll protect their casted leg. You know, they'll do stuff to help protect themselves. And so um, the laying down in the stall um, in the barn is a good thing. She looks pretty comfortable. Well, we're on day three. She's very comfortable. She's getting around her stall well. She's getting up and down. She's got a very good appetite. Loving some carrots. She's pretty smart, so she's been laying down, which is a good thing, right? Yeah, which is what we want. You know, she sleeps well at night, and, uh, you know, it's just a day-by-day -day thing. We'll change her cast in five days, and um, hopefully uh, after that, we'll, uh, you know, get from one week to the next. Unlimited carrots, I take it. All she wants. All she wants, and she deserves it. Really great to hear from those connections with some good updates on Echo Zulu. Do want to remind you that Santa Anita does continue this weekend. First post, 12.30 Friday, 12.30 Saturday, and 12.30 Sunday. There are still tickets left to the Breeders' Cup. You can collect them at breederscup.com. Guys? Randy, your take on the Echo Zulu situation. Well, hopefully it'll have a happy ending. Uh, it, she's definitely not out of the woods, as the veterinarians say. It's four to six weeks typically uh, before you can, you know, really be super confident that everything's going to be okay. We've seen these things that can, you know, can turn around in an instant with laminitis or something like that. So fingers crossed that Echo Zulu uh, comes out of this okay and is able to uh, to be what Steve Asmussen said, a good mama. Said she deserves to have a chance. To be a mama. What's what's really uh, troubling, I think, is what we've seen this summer and now with Echo Zulu. Three of the fastest sprinters in America, Echo Zulu, probably the fastest, and then also New York Thunder and Maple Leaf Mel. Uh, hopefully, it's just a coincidence, uh, but it it is disconcerting to say the least that you know these horses that run so fast. Uh, are having trouble right now uh, staying sound. And, yeah. and you hit the nail on the head there. Fast horses, fast times, it, it's dangerous. There are no ifs, ands, or buts, and we've seen it all summer long. It, it's just uh, very, very unfortunate and really nobody's fault. I want to turn our attention to another story, something I wrote about earlier this week in the uh, Thoroughbred Daily News. Carrie Breon, if you're not familiar with her name, she is the former assistant to Jonathan Shepard, took over in 2021 when Shepard retired. 
like Shepard has some steeplechase horses, has some flat horses. She was the latest person to land on the naughty list, the Hairu Horse Racing Integrity and Welfare Unit list of trainers provisionally suspended. Uh, they uh, alleging that a horse she ran at Presque Isle Downs tested positive for cocaine. And um, right now they're waiting for the split sample to come back. But if at the end of the day uh, she is not exonerated, uh, she will face a suspension of up to two years. And as I look at uh, the story of someone like this and some of the other people that uh, Hai Wu has, has gotten, uh, my take is they're, they're catching a lot of people, but they're not catching the bad guys. Now, I don't know Carrie Brown that well. I've talked to her a few times, but if she's cheating, then <laughs> no. Uh, let's put it this way. Th this is the type of trainer you just have to use some common sense. Um, she's a good trainer. She wins about 13% of her starts. She came up under uh, Jonathan Shepard, somebody who, when it comes to integrity, is, is, is the best there was, among the best there was in business. Gets a cocaine positive. You have to worry about it, about environmental contamination. And when a Carrie Brianna of the world is facing two years off of her career, I don't know what the answer is here, but something isn't right. And there's just so many people on this list uh, that are people that that you, know, you look at their records, you look at their reputations, they just don't show any outward signs of being people that are quote unquote cheaters. And then when it comes to the guys that, you know, win 28% and then they win 40% off the claim, and I'm not going to name any names, but just about everybody knows who I'm talking about. You could, you know, uh, pick out a list of, of eight, nine trainers. They're not catching them. Um, something's not right here. And at the end of the day, uh, I, I hope that Carrie Brown, can I be sure that she didn't cheat? No, but you got to use some common sense here. And that's what's not part of the equation. And I think Haiwu slash Heiss is getting a lot of people that really don't, uh, haven't done anything to warrant the kind of penalties that they're facing. Well, look, I think you know where I'm going with this. Uh, you know, there is an investigative wing of Haiwu and of Heisa that hopefully when it really gets rolling, we'll catch some of the guys that you're talking about that may be cheating uh, with substances that connected by testing. But look, when Heisa and Haiwu first got going, one of the primary complaints in horse racing was that the current testing protocols were inadequate. They were just they were just not doing what they were supposed to do. And so the rules were made. They were set in stone. Uh, if, you know, permissive therapeutic medications come up with an overage, this is what the penalty is going to be. This is what the procedure is going to be. If other more serious drugs come up with overages, this is what the penalties are going to be. This is what the procedures are going to be. There, ha there have been some tweaks made by HISA and HIWU regarding provisional suspensions to, uh, to make it a little less expensive for trainers, to expedite the situation with trainers. But look, this, this is not butazolidin or a Lasix overage. This is a positive test for cocaine, for crying out loud, right? If this were, for example, if this were Rick Dutrow that had a positive test for cocaine, what do you think would be going on right now? What do you think we'd be talking about right now? No, I don't think she cheated. Nobody's going to cheat purposely with cocaine. I mean, that's something that it's going to be tested for, uh, you know, 100 times out of 100. 
But she will get, if the split sample comes up positive as well, she and her attorneys will get the opportunity to prove contamination, which certainly seems like it's what it would be. And hopefully, you know, this will have an ending that uh, that works out okay. I don't think she was cheating. I'm, I know you don't. I'm sure Zoe doesn't. But a cocaine positive is not a small, little, insignificant thing. Well, Randy, let me counter with a couple of different things I want to bring up. I mean, you, like everybody else, uh, or admit that there's just, just almost no chance Carrie Brion really did anything wrong here. And if that's the case, how could it be that she's facing perhaps a two-year suspension? I know, you know, the trainer responsibility rules and all that sort of thing, and it is a violation. But, you know, to think that she doped a horse with cocaine to try to win a race, I mean, nobody in their right mind thinks that happened. Here's the other thing that I want to bring up, and I did a little bit of Randy Moss going down the rabbit hole on this one. Um, You know, the the punishment needs to fit the crime. And, and I think a lot of these uh, serious suspensions that Hai Wu is handing out, um, you know, are suspensions or violations that merit a two-year penalty. So I checked with the ARCI and the last time, this happened in Pennsylvania, the last time a horse tested positive for cocaine in Pennsylvania was in 2008. So it hasn't happened in 15 years. And now what Carrie Brion is facing a two possible two year suspension. The trainer, I didn't get a name of that. There was no suspension, no loss of purse. And the person was fined seven hundred and fifty dollars. So that's how the system treated this offense pre HISA. Now, compared to the way HISA slash HIWU is throwing the book at the person. But that's the kind of stuff that we didn't like. Right. I mean, there weren't the. There weren't enough. There wasn't enough of a deterrent at these places around the country uh, for positive tests. I mean, if we want a system that is consistent to everybody, then and and we want a system that treats a cocaine positive as a fairly serious thing, then it's got to be the same across the board. We can't let that much wiggle room come into the system or else you're going to have jurisdictions that say or say, oh, yeah, this guy, uh, he's a, you know, he's a leading trainer. We really don't need to be suspending him. So let's kind of take it easy on him. The penalty has got to be the same for everybody. The chance to prove that it's contamination and that you're innocent has to be the same for everybody. It has to be expedited. I think they've done that. And hopefully, uh, Carrie Breon, if she's innocent and we think she is, uh, we'll be able to to make that work. Oh, I mean, God, Zoe, wait, maybe I, you've got a different opinion from me. Let me just jump in one more thing before I let Zoe sure. go. No, I totally agree. So in an offense like this, whether it's it's um, Todd Pletcher or the, the lowest trainer on the rung at Finger Lakes, I think something along the lines of a seven-day suspension would be perfectly appropriate for something like this, not two years. Zoe, help me out here. Um, I'm not sure a seven-day suspension for a positive of cocaine would be warranted. I mean, at some point, you have to draw a line. What is contamination? What is not? Now, we're talking picograms. A picogram is one trillionth of a gram, for those of you that have been hiding under a rock. Now, when they test horses, it is a picogram in a milliliter of blood. Now, say your horse tests positive for seven picograms. So that's seven picograms 
per one millimeter. There are 50,000 millimeters of blood in a horse. So seven times 50,000, I can't do the math sitting right here, but you can do the math. That would be a whole body of a horse. So we have to figure out the measuring and the picograms and say when enough is enough. You have to draw a line at some point. And I, I think we're just, this is gonna be a whole learning process. But seven days for a cocaine violation is not gonna cut it. That's not the look that we're trying to send forward. And I know it's possibly contamination and she will get a chance to prove that. Boy, I hope I'm never in a case where you two are on the jury. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in big trouble. Stay, stay away from that cocaine, Bill. Yeah, hopefully that's not a problem here. So anyways, all right. So we'll keep uh, keep you up to breast on the Carrie Brione situation and see how this works out. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll watch as the uh, see if justice is blind or not uh, as Haiwu gets Carrie Brion to top their list now of someone else suspended for uh, something they probably don't deserve to be that suspended for, but that's okay. All right. The TDN Riders Room is brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. A couple of big Pennsylvania bred results this past weekend. First of all, witty Pennsylvania bred. Owned, trained by Liz Merriman, was the winner of the Maryland Million Turf Sprint. That was on Saturday. Woody is a four-year-old. He's a half-brother to Caravelle, and he's now earned just under a half million dollars. And speaking of Caravelle, we'll talk about her a little bit later, but she just missed in the Franklin Stakes at Sunday on Keeneland. She was trying to go back-to-back in that race. She finished second as the three-to-five favorite. So big sister got beat, but little brother managed to win both Caravelle and her damn ZZ Zoom Zoom scheduled to be sold at the Keeneland November sale. And don't forget the last leg of that two-year-old $1 million Pennsylvania sired Pennsylvania bred stallion series will be December the 27th. Two-year-old Colts, two-year-old Phillies. The distance is now up to a mile and 70 yards for both races. And the purses are up to $200,000. Check the pabred.com website to make sure your two-year-old is nominated. If not, contact the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association that's an email of info at pabred.com. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA sired, PA bred two-year-olds at parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. The TD Writers Room, brought to you by the Fast Sires at Windstar Farm, the sponsors every week of our Fastest Horse of the Week segment. This week's spotlighted stallion at Windstar will be Constitution, and what a year he's had with his two-year-olds. He had another two-year-old stakes winner this past weekend. Tripolina beat the boys in the display stakes at Woodbine. She's now two for two. She was also entered against the females in the Glorious Song Stakes, scratched out of that one to run against the boys. We've seen that as a prevailing theme at Woodbine this year, this summer and fall, where the Phillies, the two-year-old Phillies, are faster than the two-year-old Colts. And Tripolina proved that again this past weekend. Constitution now has 22-year-old winners this year, 12 of them first-time starter winners. He has more juvenile winners than any sire in North America. 
Now, fastest horse of the week. If you watched the Dixiana Queen Elizabeth II on Sunday at Keeneland, you saw Maj trained by our friend Saeed Ben Soror go wire to wire in the QE2. For the Godolphin stable, Maj earned a buyer speed figure of 99. She reportedly now is being considered for the Breeders' Cup mile against the boys. So Maj at 99. Fire speed figures, our fastest horse of the week. Meanwhile, the Green Group is a tax consulting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry and specializing in saving you money on your taxes. The Green Group, also the sponsor, of course, of our Green Group Guest of the Week segment. So enjoy. Well, we're very pleased in this week's edition of the TDN Writers Room to have a very special guest for our Green Group Guest of the Week. He needs no introduction. It's Pat Day, the Hall of Fame writer, and thought it would be a good time to bring on Pat for two things. First of all, with the Breeders' Cup coming up, he can tell us a lot of his Breeders' Cup memories, walk us down memory lane, but also a milestone birthday Last Friday, on Friday the 13th of all things, Pat Day turned 70 years old. Uh, Pat, so I'm sure all our viewers and listeners want to know, uh, since you retired in 2008, bring us up to speed to present. What are you doing? Uh, what's keeping you busy? How much you fall in horse racing? Well, <clears throat> actually, I, I retired in 2005, Bill. And, uh, okay. uh, you know, I, I was very involved with the ministry uh, on and off the racetrack previously uh, to that, you know, since 1984 when when I made a commitment to Jesus Christ, invited him into my heart to be my Lord and Savior, um, I, I told people what I was doing after I retired was not unlike what I'd done before I retired, except I was doing it without the added distraction of a full-time career and uh, was very involved in, and have continued to be very involved with the chaplaincy on the racetrack. And then I've been very privileged to have opportunities to speak at area churches and youth groups, <clears throat> Fellowship of Christian Athletes and other events. I'll just share my testimony uh, about the joy of having a relationship with the Lord. Uh, and then, um, uh, unfortunately, in 2021, uh, my wife had a stroke. And uh, so she's recovering from that. And I've had the distinct privilege and honor of, uh, of being her caregiver. And so that has taken up a bulk of my time, though I still have the opportunity to do some guest speaking uh, as long as it's, uh, you know, in close proximity to the house. And in, and in uh, answer to your question, have I followed the races? Uh, I'm not real closely, Bill. I uh, Obviously, I watched the Triple Crown. I watched some of the prep races uh, coming up, you know, up to the Derby, Preakness, Der uh, Belmont. And then, of course, coming up to the Breeders' Cup next week. Been watching the races a bit. Uh, always an exciting time of the year. And, and of course, the Breeders' Cup is just, that's the uh, uh, second only to the Derby, in my opinion. Although the money is significantly greater uh, I think if you talk to anybody that's won a Breeders' Cup and hasn't won the Derby, they'll tell you they want to win the Derby. Oh. Right. Absolutely. Well, Pat, I'm delighted to have you here. It's been a long time since I actually saw you. But I want to ask you, how was that 70th birthday? I, I believe, was it a bit of a surprise with a theme? How did they manage to surprise you? Um, my wife and daughter, uh, my wife, Sheila, and my daughter, Irene, uh, and obviously, everybody that was involved done an excellent job of keeping a lid on it. Uh, my daughter duped me into believing because they held it at the at the local VFW here in Middletown. And uh, my daughter had had me believing that in some way or, or another, she had been uh, 
she was getting a, 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 a certificate to go to VFW or something. They were honoring her that evening. And so we were going to meet there to do the, to experience that, watch her get that, and then go to dinner at 630. And when I walked in, everybody was there. And it was uh, uh, overwhelming, to say the least. When I opened the door and, and my daughter was going, uh, surprise. And uh, I, I, I was just <laughs> captivated by the look on her face. And didn't see any of the others. They were just kind of blurred in the background at the moment. But then as I as I looked around and I seen who all was there, uh, uh, some some great fellow riders were there. Um, my wrestling coach from high school was there, him and his wife, uh, you know, friends from near and far, family from near and far. Uh, and it was it was just an extraordinary evening. Uh, I, I got to tell you, the 70 is pretty special. Was it a 70s theme as well? Were people dressed in 70s yeah. garb? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> a 70th, uh, 70s theme with the 70th birthday. So it was, it was a great way to rock in number 70, I'll tell you what. It was, right. it was exciting and overwhelming, to say the least. Uh, that's terrific that your loved ones went to such uh, great lengths to give you a very special day. All right, Pat, let's talk Breeders' Cup. And 1984, wild again, Pat Day wins the inaugural Breeders' Cup Classic. And if you look at your record, you were doing well up to 1984, but not you didn't yet become the superstar rider that you became in later years. How much did that win mean to you? How much did it mean to your career? And did you know at the time, because it was only the first Breeders' Cup, just what a big deal this was? No, no, I could not have ever guessed that. Uh, first of all, I remember when they first started talking about the Breeders' Cup, $10 million, seven races one day, I'm gone. Not in my lifetime. And and then it came to pass, and I was very fortunate to get the mount on Wild again. And he ran the race of his life, in my opinion, and subsequently won that first race. Um what that meant for my career was monumental. Uh, and I, do, I believe that it came to, first of all, let me back up. In January of 84 was when I came to Christ. And as you might know, uh, I, I, was, I was a stone alcoholic drug addict uh, and was being highly successful in the midst of that. In January, on January 27th of 1984, I accepted Christ into my life and got set free from that addictive lifestyle recognized that God had blessed me with tremendous talent and ability and opportunities and, uh, and started treating it with the respect that it deserved. Subsequently, had an incredible year, uh, capped by the, the victory on Wild Again in the inaugural Breeders' Cup. Uh, and that, that secured my first of, I think, four Eclipse Awards. Uh, you know, it, I, I don't know that you could, you could put a price on just what it done for my career. It was it was tremendous. And, uh, you know, catapulted me to the next level. I started getting opportunities after that to participate in the major races all over the country and not just participate, but participate on the choice. Uh, you know, I was getting on the stock. I was getting the opportunities. And by the grace of God, I was taking advantage of, of those opportunities and and um, and, you know, had a had a wonderful run for the next 20 years. Well, is, have you been surprised with how far Breeders' Cup has come from that very first one, which in of itself was a novelty right off the bat, but it's just seemingly gone from strength to strength? Um, no, it's not surprising. The way the first one was received, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, let, let me back up. Of course, it's caught us by surprise. I don't believe that anybody uh, in 1984 could have anticipated or envisioned 
that it would be what it is today. Two days of racing. What are they giving away? 27 or 28 million now? I, I don't know the number. 31, I think. 31. Hello. I better get back in the loop. I wonder if I can still get into my britches. <laughs> Maybe I need to get back in the game. No, I don't think that anybody could have anticipated that it would grow uh, and, and expand into to what it is today. It's a, it's a tremendous two days of racing, international racing. I mean, you know, people from all over the world, every, every racing locale comes and participates, you know, given the, given the fact that if, if they have the, the horses to compete. Tremendous, tremendous two days of racing. So, Pat, I asked you about Wild again, one, one of your uh, foremost uh, high moments in the Breeders' Cup. How about the other uh, side of this, Easy Goer Sunday Silence? Is that the one that hurts the most? Is that the one that still kind of gnaws at you a little bit? Oh, you know it. Yeah. You know it. Uh, then is now. I, I believe that Easy Goer was the better of the two. Uh, the record doesn't bear that out. Uh, Easy Gore was a phenomenal racehorse. Uh, he had his problems, and uh, Shig McGahey done an excellent job in prepping, prepping his horses for his races. But, uh, you know, after the, the Jockey Club Gold Cup, I think he tailed off a little bit. He, he didn't really want to be in the game that day. Uh, if, you, if you go back and watch the race, he came out of the chute in the one hole. When he got to the end of the hedge, if, if you might recall there at, at Gulfstream, when he got to the end of the hedge, he made a left-hand turn. I mean, he didn't duck, but he leaned to the left like, I want to go home. And it was just jumping straight up and down and not running at all. Uh, he got into the race when we turned up the backside, when he changed over to his right lead, ran right up on Sunday silence. And if he'd have, uh, if he'd have been given to hold his position at that point, uh, I think we'd have, we'd, have, we'd have beat him handily, uh, much like we did in the, in the uh, uh, Belmont. But as it was... Sunday Silence changed leads, dropped into the turn, accelerated. Easy Gore changed leads and spit the bit. And I went to work on him, uh, getting very little response. When he came off the turn, uh, he was slow changing leads. He finally did. When he did, he caught on and accelerated, but obviously too little, too late. And uh, there was just so much hanging in the balance. Uh, Three-year-old of the year, horse of the year. You know, there were some tre tremendous accolades that hung in the balance. And so, yeah, that that uh, uh, the Breeders' Cup and, and uh, the second hardest pill to swallow with him would have been the, the Preakness. Uh, I think I rode a, a horrible race in the and I, I think that I cost him the race in the Preakness. And, uh, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda, didn't. But um, uh, no, he was he was a great horse. The best I ever rode. Pat, you're a world class rider. You're a Hall of Famer. We see how easy it is nowadays for young jocks to get their licenses. It's not like the old days where they actually had to work for a trainer. It seems like nowadays a lot of these young jocks are putting feed pots on their heads and then all of a sudden they're a jockey. What would you like to see change as far as young apprentices moving up through the ranks? Just to give them a bit more experience and a bit more knowledge of the horses. I think the horsemanship seems to be lost nowadays. Uh, it, it, it does for the riders in this country. I think the riders coming in from uh, other countries, Puerto Rico and South America, you know, we, uh, we got some great riders coming in this country and we got some good young riders here. But um, and, and I commend Chris McCarron for the North American Riding Academy. I think they they certainly it's the only place in the country where a writer, a young person can go and, and get some sort of an education 
some experience and and before they put the helmet on their head and walk on the track and say they're a they're a jockey um i I don't know what's necessary uh but i would like to see them get a little more experience under their belt before they you know before they go out there and start participating i think and i think it would be better for them uh in the long run you know i think when they go out there and and then make uh, some colossal mistakes uh, and possibly cause some some accidents or not, um, but not performing at their best uh, because of a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge, uh, it, it short circuits their career. Uh, Pat, there's been a lot of talk in the last couple of years about how the modern riders are rougher across the line, uh, sometimes try to intimidate their rivals. The name Irod Ortiz Jr. comes up a lot uh, when there's that subject. Um, do you see that? And was were jockeys more cognizant of or more gentlemanly back in your day or more likely to kind of look out for one another rather than maybe try to cross a line if crossing that line could mean winning a race? Well, I think I think the top riders have always ridden close, ridden tight, not cutting anybody any slack unnecessarily, but riding to the degree that, uh, say, Irad has. Uh, I, I'm sorry. Here's a young man with tremendous talent, always well-placed, horses running well for him, uh, finishing strong, uh, totally unnecessary, some of the stuff that he's doing out there. And in my opinion, totally unacceptable. Uh, I think that they, they give him a pass on too many accounts on too many occasions and has led him to believe that he can, can, can continue to do that. Uh, I, I don't see the need for that. You know, it, it's, um, uh, but be that as it may, I, I don't know that it's decidedly rougher today. I think that maybe the lack of experience when they, when they go to ride tight, they cross the line, just uh, whether on purpose or lack of control. Uh, I, I think the riders, such as my generation, I think that nobody was cutting anybody any slack. I assure you that. Uh, but at the same time, they weren't putting you in a precarious position either. They were just, they were holding their position. They were holding their place. And, and uh, you know, if you run up in a bad spot, you was in a bad spot. But again, if and if you had a, had trouble, you know, if they could look over and see that you was in trouble, come on, they're not going to drop you. Uh, they, they weren't, you know, they, they were going to cut you some slack at that point. Um I think I rode with the best of the best, and I think it was the best time to be in the great sport of horse racing. Who was the most competitive rider you ever rode against? Like when you got up beside them and you're like looking them in the eye, who was the guy you're like, oh, God, that guy again? Like who for you was your fiercest competitor? Well, whoever was on the best horse was always <laughs> to be feared. You know? But, uh, you know, I, I, you, you talk about that. Angel's name always comes up, you know. We laughingly say he could ride two or three horses in a race. Um, Angel, I love you, man. But uh, he, he was an astute handicapper. And if he handicapped the race and he felt that you was the horse to beat, uh, he, he was going to beat you. He felt like if he beat you, he'd win the race. And, and uh, so he was, he was eligible to do some of those things but, uh, and very competitive. But I think, I think day in and day out, the smartest, strongest rider I rode against uh, on a regular basis uh, it was Jerry Bailey. Uh, he'd draw up a game plan, and he was he was able to implement that game plan. Myself, on the on the other hand, I was an intuitive rider. Uh, I rode the way they felt. You know, I I, I mean, I looked at the racing form. Obviously, I had an idea how I thought it would unfold, 
But when the doors open, you you got to ride the race the way it comes up. And I was I was never able to process the racing form and say, okay, this is what's going to happen, and this is where I want to be, and this is what I want to do. And you know, I I I look back now, and probably the last major race, or one of them that I rode that I won, uh, was the Bluegrass at at Canlan on a horse called Menifee. And I had ridden him three or four times previous to to the Bluegrass. Uh, that afternoon, he broke. He was third going around the first turn. Good position. Up the backside, in the bridle, half-mile pull, spit the bit. Well, Jerry was right behind me. And when Menifee dropped the bit, I just shook him up one time, kind of rattled the reins at him and got no response. And uh, for whatever reason, I was content to just sit there. Okay, if you don't want to pick him up, you know, we'll we'll let you. We'll let, I was content to let him go ahead and drop back. Jerry was right behind me. He seen me do that, and he said, well, he's done. Got no response, tanks on empty or something. And so he pulled out and went past me. So now instead of third, I'm fourth. Now we're getting into the turn, three-eighths pole. And um, so I'm two or three off the fence, so I just angled down towards the fence. When we got closer to the fence, he went to picking up the bridle. So come to the 5-16th pole, he gets back into the bridle, cuts the corner, looked like a marvelous smart ride cut the corner, run up behind the two leaders that I'd been on the outside of earlier, run up behind them, ease out, went down the racetrack and won. And I come back in the room and Jerry looked at me and just shook his head. He said, I thought you was out of horse. I go, I thought I was too, Jerry. <laughs> I, I was an intuitive rider. I, I Horses wanted to do what I wanted them to do. And, and when they didn't respond immediately, I was content to let them drop back. And then, I don't know, I was, I was a good passenger, I believe. Um, you know, and, and horses wanted to do, like I said, they wanted to do what I wanted them to do when I wanted them to do it. Uh, and I had a, 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 an intuitiveness of knowing when to ask them for their best to subsequently be in front of the wire. Pat, a little bit of a trick question here, but do you know where you were on February 24th of 2001 at 352 Central Time? A.M. or P.M.? <laughs> that would be P.M. I hope I hope A.M. you were sound asleep. <laughs> okay, what was what was the year again? Uh, two thousand and one, February twenty fourth, two thousand and one, three fifty two p.m. Central Time. Oh, I don't have a clue. <laughs> All right, I didn't think you did, but I I wanted to find out mano a mano how you fared against Zoe Cadman in your career. And um, this is the only race I could find. And there might be some more. But the two of you competed against one another that day in the eighth race at the fairgrounds as allowance horse. You were in to ride a stakes race. And how about this? Zoe beat you. She was yes. next to last and you were last. So <laughs> Zoe can Zoe's got, as far as I can tell, um, Knuckle and, uh, I, spent a, I spent a little time researching this. So uh, Zoe is up one on you, so far as we can tell, Pat. Oh, my goodness. Uh, That's awesome, Bill. You made my day. <laughs> I beat Pat Day. You beat Pat Day. Even though you were next to last, uh, Pat. you beat Pat Day. How about and, that? And and I would guess that we probably come off the turn neck and neck, and she put the hammer down, was determined to do that, too. <laughs> Yes, yes. So Zoe can go brag to everybody that, that she uh, got the best of Pat Day in, in what may have been their only meeting on the racetrack. So congratulations, Zoe. Thank you very much.
<laughs> All right. Well, well, Pat, you've been a great guest. It's so much fun to catch up with you. You're doing great. Happy birthday. And uh, enjoyed going down memory lane with you for on the Breeders' Cup. Thanks for being this week's Green Group Guest of the Week on the TDN Writers Room Podcast. Absolutely my pleasure. Great to be on with you too. And uh, y'all have a blessed day. Let's all have a safe and, and uh, happy and wonderful Breeders' Cup week and weekend. And, and all the best always. God bless. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pat. As this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, Pat Day will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from Lynn Green and the Green Group. For more information on how the Green Group might be able to help you, just like they'll help Pat Day, you can log on to www.greenco.com. It was another exceptional week for Kentucky Breds in Europe after Justify's City of Troy took home the Group 1 Juhas at Newmarket. They are already speaking of him in superlatives. Pun intended, he did win that race as well. Listen to this. The horse just does not get tired. The best since Frankel. Or is he? On ground that Aidan O'Brien described as needing tractor tires to plow through. He ran six consecutive sub-12 quarters. It's no wonder they're already talking about next year's English Triple Crown. Personally, I'd like to see him come over here for the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. Anyway, that was just one of four exciting Kentucky bred winners over the weekend in England and Ireland, including two other maiden winners for Justify and one for Quality Road. Randy, Bill, City of Troy, pretty damn amazing. He just travels so easily and so quickly over the ground. He's not anything terribly exciting to look at he's like an unassuming kind of horse to see if you watched him like pre-race but boy does he get over the ground easily yeah when they start bringing up comparisons to frankel that's when you have to start paying attention to this horse yeah aiden o'brien says it's the fastest two-year-old that he's ever trained um yeah aiden will throw out the superlatives now and then but he's uh you know, obviously really, really high on City of Troy. I think the quote that I enjoyed the most from him, and there were a lot of them, was something along the lines of, we push out all our horses to the limit, and we haven't been able to find the limit yet on City of Troy. I thought that was a pretty interesting quote, and Ryan Moore uh, said that it's the best two-year-old performances that he has seen since Frankel. He said it's kind of silly right now to compare him to Frankel, but he'll certainly get an opportunity to prove himself uh, further as a three-year-old, and he certainly looks uh, like like he's an exciting type. He got a 125 time form, and Frankel got a 126 when he won the Dewhurst, which is fairly similar, but at the end of the day, Frankel is still the highest-rated horse. Like He got a 147, and Flightline was a 140, so we'll have to see what next year holds for him, but He's pretty amazing and justify. Oh, my goodness. Like he's a stallion of the ages, is he not? Isn't that something you breed justify to a dirt mare and you get these fabulous dirt runners. You breed justify to a grass mare. In this case, it was a Galileo mare. And you get horses that are, you know, fantastic grass horses. He's really, really turning out uh, to be a very impressive stallion. Did you think Bob Baffert, after winning the Triple Crown with those two, ever thought they'd be preeminent turf sires? Because you know, uh, really? he said that turfs, you know, for the slower horses are at least he used to. But now these two are going to be like champion turf sires, Pharaoh and Justify. It's amazing. 
All right. So we mentioned Marge winning the, um, the Dixieana Queen Elizabeth II stakes. Um, one thing that I was surprised, this was Saeed Bensour's first win in the United States since 2011. Um, I didn't realize it had been nearly that long. Uh, we got uh, Randy's thoughts on this horse. Um, Zoe, what's your take on her? Is she good enough to win a Breeders' Cup race? She's good enough to win the Breeders' Cup mile. That's yeah. where she's going, according to Saeed Bensaroa this morning. She's a half to modern games. We all saw what he did in the Breeders' Cup. So she's bred up, down, and sideways to be a miler. He did say she was about 90% fit for that race. So he feels that she will move on. She's going to love the top of the ground, which is exactly what she's going to get out here. And she's quick. When is the last time that you saw a European almost get run down? I mean, Brendan's horse ran absolutely huge. What was her name? I got it here somewhere. Uh, Lindy. Lindy ran a bang up race to be second to her. And she was faltering perhaps a little bit late. And she'd been off for quite some time. And Saeed simply saying that she needed the run. She'll stay at Keelan for a while and then ship over here. Also, his 500th group win, group grade one win, lifetime. So that was probably just needed. And, and like Randy said last week, how can you not root for Saeed? Right. It, it looks like they'll have two in the mile as well with Master of the Seas for Appleby. Mm -hmm. It's going to be Appleby against Saeed. Which one are you taking? Well, I... I would probably take Appleby right now. But, you know, it, to, to Bill's point, the reason why it's been so long between drinks for Saeed Ben Soror in America is because of Charlie Appleby, right? Yeah. All the top Godolphin horses now wind up in Newmarket with Appleby. Uh, but it's nice to see Saeed is still in the uh, still in Sheikh Mohammed's good graces uh, to be able to have a horse like this. But what a great weekend for Godolphin as well. You had Bold Act winning the Sycamore with Spencer and Appleby, and then going the next day to New York with Eternal Hope, taking down the Sands Point. So it was Godolphin all, all the time last weekend. Isn't it always Godolphin whenever they <laughs> ship over to the United States of America? Okay, one other race to talk about um, on Sunday at Keeneland, the Franklin Stakes Caravelle, uh, the Pennsylvania bred, who won the Breeders' Cup turf sprint last year, lost for the second straight time as she was beaten in the Franklin Stakes. Two straight losses. Uh, trainer Brad Cox said he's going on still to the Breeders' Cup. But, um, I, you know, I'm not saying she couldn't win, but uh, she's not coming into the race uh, the way she did last year. She's not coming in on a positive trajectory. She's coming in off of two defeats. So uh, we'll see if she can repeat in the Breeders' Cup. But uh, right now off her last race, you know, her odds are going to be, uh, I would think, what, about the eight, nine to one range, uh, Randy? Or is that too high? Yeah. Well, no, it's, uh, she was a long shot last year. Uh, and she came into last year's Breeders' Cup turf sprint off a 92 buyer speed figure. What did she get in the Franklin on Sunday? A 92 buyer speed figure. Also, I don't think that she is at her best on a turf course that has given it. Now, she ran well at Keeneland in, in an earlier turf sprint, uh, I think it was this spring, uh, on a good rated turf course, which is what the turf course was rated on Sunday. But still, I think she's better on really firm turf. And I also don't think she really wants to be two or three lengths off the pace like she was. It was an extremely fast pace in the Franklin. They went just a tick over 21 seconds flat for the first quarter mile. So yeah, I agree, Bill, that she's maybe not – I mean, she's lost twice in a row as an odds-on favorite. So it's not exactly how you want to see a horse come in. Uh, to the Breeders' Cup, but I don't think you can uh, draw a line through her quite yet. 
Not at all. I don't really believe she lost anything in defeat. You could tell she was laboring over that ground and surprisingly, Tony Ann and Phil D'Amato, she absolutely loved it. And Phil was surprised. He said he got a masterful ride by Pratt who followed the leader the whole way and just kind of just got up there in time on Tony Ann. So we'll see what happens, but she lost nothing in defeat and she will love to hear her feet rattle out here in Southern California. It'll be a swan song. She doesn't have to win. She's done enough. She has definitely done enough and she will have earned a retirement. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. This week's XBTV Work of the Week is again, Archangelo. Well, last week we talked about his first work over the surface in one or two and change, whether he looked good or whether he didn't. I think he looks about the same. Take a look for yourself as you can see Archangelo going much, much quicker this week, finishing up in a minute flat for Jenna Antonucci. That's her regular rider, Robert, aboard her. And I got a chance to speak to Jenna this morning, guys, and asked her what she thought about the work. And she thought it was great. She thought she loved the way he spun out of the turn. She said it's the first time that she's seen him turn, come around the turn with such energy, switch leads and finish up. Now, we did agree that perhaps this horse doesn't work quite as well for Robert as he does for Javier Castellano. I looked back through all his works and actually found one with Robert aboard, which is going back exactly a year. And I put them side by side on my computer this morning and you know what? He looks exactly the same. So that to me is a good thing. He galloped out very nicely indeed. I asked Jenna because I thought maybe he looked a little bit lighter in my eye. And she said he's actually put on weight here at Santa Anita, which is a very good thing indeed. And we'll probably play it by ear. He generally works every 10 days, may have a just one little blowout before the breeders come. Yeah, one of the problems with handicapping by workouts is that there's there are many problems, but one, good horses always look good. That's why they're good horses, right? I mean, they always give you that look in the morning like, wow, and they're eager and everything. Secondly, unless you unless you watch a whole like, you know, you, you unless you have something to compare it with and you watch a horse's whole series of workouts, it's tough to cherry pick one workout and say, well, I don't think this horse looked very good. It may be the way he looks all the time when he's not being asked or when he's in his next to last or third to last workout before a race. It could be a trainer pattern, right? And thirdly, you can't go by what trainers say about workouts because they never tell the truth. They always say, <laughs> oh, the horse was great. Horse looked fantastic. I'm pleased. I couldn't be more pleased with the way he's coming up to the race. And then they walk around the corner. Damn, I wish the horses were better, you know. So, uh, but in this case, you know, what I have to do is I just have to trust the trainer. And Jenna Antonucci has shown that she is very much in tune with Archangelo. She's handled this horse impeccably leading up to the Belmont, leading up to the Travers. She's been second guessed all along the way. You know, was it right to run from the Belmont to the Travers without a prep race in between? She said, I know my horse. I know what he likes. I know the way he's training. He's going to be just fine. Um, and now nothing between the Travers and the Breeders' Cup Classic. At some point, you just have to trust that the trainer knows what they're doing. And that's the way I feel about Archangelo. On the flip side, I'll just bring this up really quickly. I can remember all those years ago when California Chrome got to Churchill Downs and I was still in Southern California, but we'd been going over to Los Al and filming him and watching him and 
you know, not the best workhorse in the world, kind of only looked better when he was going fast. And three people called me the morning he got to Kentucky and was like, oh, my God, Zoe, that California chrome looks awful. Does he always look like that? And I was like, I'm not going to say he looks awful, but, yeah, he's he's not the smoothest. He gets better the further he goes. And plus, it was the first time he'd ever been on a muddy track. You know, back then we never got any mud out here in Southern California. So it was just interesting because, like you said, people had not seen him every day. And I'm like, don't worry about it. He's fine. He's going to be just fine. Don't worry about him. Watch him when he goes fast. It's all good. And I'm sure Art Sherman said afterward, he's never worked better, right? (laughs) Well, when you talk about trainers and workouts, I can understand. I mean, I've been able, Bill and I have been, you know, two of the guys holding notepads and tape recorders and part of a scrum talking to a big time trainer after a workout. And if, if the, if the trainer is disappointed in the way the horse works, the last thing he's going to do really almost every trainer is stand there in front of a group of reporters and TV cameras and say, eh, I just didn't like the way he worked. All of a sudden headlines. Then he's going to be asked about it, you know, every every minute, every morning. And, you know, and then, God forbid, if, if something happens to the horse in the running of the race, oh, you didn't like the horse in the workout. Why did you run it? You know, it's just a whole litany of bad things that can happen if trainers are honest about how they feel if they're disappointed in a workout. So I can totally, I can totally understand that. I, that's just why I ignore it. <laughs> All the thrills. Fraction of the Bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room, brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Let's look back and then let's look forward. First of all, let's look back to this past weekend. Stretch Ride won a race at Keeneland. It was an allowance race. He's a two-year-old. He won by five and three-quarters lengths. Stretch Ride is now two for two, right? Now, horses can get to points in various different ways. They have various different backgrounds. Talk about your off-the-beaten-path. Stretch Ride was a $5,000 yearling purchase at Phasing Tipton October last fall. His then-owners decided to pinhook him. They took him to France, to Deauville, to the Arcana May breeze-up sale. That's where he caught the attention of West Point Thoroughbreds and American Bloodstock agent Kip Elser. They bid 100,000 euros to acquire Stretch ride. That's a heck of a pin hook. And now look what you got. An undefeated two-year-old with a world of promise, 86 buyer speed figure for trainer Dale Romans. Now looking ahead, Vava, remember her? She won the Charlestown Oaks grade three last time out. She will run in the Raven Run on Saturday at Keeneland, going for her second consecutive graded stakes win. To learn more, visit westpointtb.com. And that's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank Randy Moss, Zoe Cadman, my partners in crime, even if they once again did beat up on me again this week when they had promised they were going to go a little bit lighter on me. Ha, 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 ha. Our co-believe that Randy went to go and see Taylor Swift. That has just made my day. (laughs) Hey, she was good. Hey, there's a friend of mine. In the, in the, on the buyer speed figure team, 
He's about, I'm looking at, he's not Andy. He's about 75 years old or so. Mark Hopkins, I'll just say his name. Everybody, a lot of people know who Mark Hopkins is. Mark calls me. And I hope I'm not violating anything, Mark. If, if, I, if, if I am, I'm sorry. He calls me about a month and a half ago. And Mark says, Randy, I have a confession to make. I said, what's that? He said, I am the world's oldest Swifty. He, <laughs> he took his grandkids to see Taylor Swift. And he loved her so much, he's taking him to Frankfurt. Next spring, oh to see her again on the European tour. Hey, t- Taylor oh, Swift, Bill. There you go. I've, I've got to uh, join. I got to jump on the bandwagon. I guess I'm the last one. I'm left. raising Randy by one, really quickly. John White. Okay. We all know John. White. He right. now does the yeah. line at Santa Anita. Front front row seats to Kelly Clarkson. There you go. Now, I've seen Kelly Clarkson in concert. There you go. That I have seen. Okay. All right. So let's do this all over again. This is a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank my partners, Randy Moss and Zoe Cabman, our Green Group Guests of the Week, Pat Day, our co-producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, our editors, Aaliyah LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson. We didn't have any dogs today. No no mascots to thank. Um, Oh, there she is. Hi, Lucy. Yeah, she has discovered her dog bed instead of a people bed. There she is. See? Aww. All right. Yeah. As active as ever, Lucy uh, is uh, enjoying the day and getting a little nap in. All right. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for watching. We'll be back next week on the TDN Writers Room Podcast. Mm-hmm.